Welcome to the Parenting with Impact podcast with your hosts, Elaine Taylor-Klaus and Diane Dempster, co-creators of ImpactParents.com, an online community, award-winning blog, and service organization, helping parents all over the world to raise complex kids become capable, independent adults. Hi, everyone. Elaine and Diane here. And we know that you want your complex kids to grow up to be happy and independent. And yet you're not always sure how or when to help with that. In this podcast, we'll encourage you to collaborate with all kinds of complex kids and support them in navigating life and learning. And we'll interview leading experts from around the world, as well as parents in our own community, talking about how training for parents actually helps these complex kids. We'll talk about the issues we hear parents struggling with all the time and how a coach approach can support and empower your amazing young people. We won't tell you what to do. We're going to help you figure out how. So let's move on to the next conversation. Welcome back, everybody, to another conversation in the Parenting with Impact podcast. We're thrilled to be here with you today, and it may look like it's just Diane and me, but it's, but it's not. not. We have a secret guest today. Thank you. Our, our guest is Kayla Taylor, and she is off screen to protect the privacy of her family and of her children and the children involved in the story we're going to talk about today. So I think we should dive right in. What do you think? I think so. Kayla, why don't you welcome? First of all, we're so glad to have you with us and glad to have you be a new a new friend with us. And um tell us a little bit about how you got into what you you do and and the why backstory. you're here. Why you're here, right? <laughs> so right, and cool. let me let me preface by saying Kayla is the author of a book called Canaries Among Us, and we will have a link to that in the show notes. So Elaine and Diane, thank you so much for having me here today. I am honored to be here. And yes, so my background is in business and strategy and finance. I actually never intended to write a book, but I had an experience that just rocked my family's world. And I dealt with bullying and learning differences and anxiety. And the issues were all conflated and confusing and isolating. And no one would talk to me about them. I was um, gaslit a lot when I was told something was happening I was, people told me, no, that's not really happening, or you're receiving that wrong, or mm -hmm. your kids just find out, go to that, or they're being too sensitive. They're not really being mm -hmm. bullied. And so I started writing, I started journaling just to help work through the morass of feelings and emotions and thoughts in my head. It was really pretty cathartic. Um, you I know, bet. I just bled my experience onto paper. And I was simultaneously to try to address. To find a mix between what I was feeling and experience and what I perceived to be my truth versus what other people were telling me was happening, I started doing a ton of research. I was a huge nerd who read all the self-help books and then went to all the footnotes and all the endnotes and then, then you know, paid $29.95 to read all the journal articles for right. you know, one nugget of information. <laughs> and so after about three years, I was able to get my kids to better footing and I looked out of what I started, I started to call my deep, dark hole. I felt so isolated, but when, mm -hmm. my, you know, when your kids are feeling better, you can st start looking around. I came out of my hole and I started looking around and I realized I was not alone. In fact, I could see so many other families going through the exact same things. Mm -hmm. They too thought they were all alone, but I could see they were right next to each other. And I wanted to do something about that. I mean, mm -hmm. I think as you have probably discussed many times, one out of every five kids is has a learning difference. Bullying affects about 20 to 30% of all kids, although most don't report it. And we can get into that later. Before COVID, anxiety was expected to affect about one in three adolescents. 
And if you pile all these statistics on top of each other, it was confounding to me that parents weren't talking. And then it became apparent it was because of all the stigma. And I just wanted to address that stigma. So I decided to actually felt a little bit of a moral obligation because I so wanted a memoir or a story to help me feel less alone. And so I felt an obligation to pay that forward. And then I also thought, you know, every parent shouldn't have to reinvent the wheel and spend hours and hours and hours doing all the research that I did. So I wanted to package that in the book as well. Um, yeah. I imagine it's somewhat similar to how you got to doing what you're doing. That I was going to say the experience and the story just feels to... familiar. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I know, call it my some... Scarlett O'Hara moment. That moment yes. when I looked up and said, as God is my witness, no parent should ever have to go through what I went through alone for the next, for the last 10 years. Yes, so I really, yes. really get that, that feeling. Yes. And my, and I really want to acknowledge and honor what it takes to stand up and say, this isn't going to be just my experience alone. I'm going to use this to do something to make the world a better place with it. That is exactly the goal. Yeah. Well, and yeah. I want to take it a step further because I know we're going to talk a lot about kids in school and bullying and challenges. And I want, I want to give you permission as you're working through this, Kayla, to talk about the impact that it had on you as well, because a lot of our listeners are feeling it themselves and we forget that it impacts us as well. And so I want to just kind of lay that and preface that as you tell us a little bit about the back, you know, continue with the backstory and, and um, how you, as you were journaling, what were some of the key things that were going on that you wanted to capture for yourself and then ultimately for the world. Diane, that is such a gift that you just said and gave, because I can tell you that even as writing this book, I obviously wrote it from the caregiver's perspective, but the number of times I felt, and also that I heard that, you know, the victim here is the child. Who are you? You know, people will have no sympathy for you. You're mm-hmm. the adult. You need to be tough. And let's talk about the child. And I get that. And I agreed to accept my priority is, was my children, mostly because they were more vulnerable than I ever was. But the impact on me was no less significant. In fact, right. I've heard people say, people who, for example, were both neurodiverse and raised neurodiverse children that I've heard them say, so it's their lived experience, but that it was harder to raise children than to be the person. I think, you know, I'm not sure where that comes from. Maybe a sense of responsibility. Uh, Maybe you feel like maybe, you know, more and you understand the long-term implications. Um, But, you know, as they say, you're only as happy as your least happy child. Um, Well, That's a huge gift, Diane. Thank you. As a parent who was neurodiverse and didn't know it as a kid and raised a bunch of neurodiverse kids. Like I, you know, as you're just saying that I'm like, yeah, that I do this work because I don't want other kids to grow up feeling the way I did, or my kids did those first 10 years, Mm -hmm. but I can't do anything about that. I can do something from here forward. Right. And so a lot of it, I think is, is, is our experience is important. And what I hear you saying, what Diana is speaking to is that, it's not just what happened to your kid and to the kids in that class environment with your, with your child, but it's what happened to you and how you responded to it and how you right. chose to deal with it. And that has an impact and is a, a very important part of the story. Right. Well. well, I think as a parent, you see more all the systemic factors at play. Yeah. And so that can be even more discouraging. You know, you aren't 
up just against one or two kids who are mistreating your child. You are against a whole system that does not choose to make an effort to honor individuality in a way that's mm-hmm. humane. And that, <laughs> that's so, daunting. So we're kind of talking around it. Let's let's get a little bit more specific, Great. if we will. You know, and I've read, I have full disclosure, I haven't finished your entire book, but it's but but it's gripped me and I have I'm certainly well into it. And the story is that you had a child who was impacted by bullying and and through your own learning and, and supporting your child that discovered then your child's neurodiversity and then began to see and understand a larger relationship between neurodiversity and bullying and ultimately larger levels of victimization and sort of from there. So let's, let's pick it up from, you know, you at the point where you're aware that you have a child with both neurodiversity, it has been experiencing bullying in a school environment that you were trying very hard to stay connected to because you wanted mm-hmm. to support and be part of the school environment. And yet mm-hmm. you weren't getting the support you needed from there. Right. What was the experience? I think the there? biggest aha moment for me is when I read, you know, like I said, I, I was the nerd who did a ton of research and I was treated often, even by friends, that my child was being overly sensitive and I was too, and we just needed to toughen up. But then I read that the experts classify bullying as a form of victimization mm-hmm. and it's a matter of social justice. And this is particularly true because actually the definition of bullying is that bullying is the act of repeatedly causing physical and or emotional harm to another person with less power. And so that that power piece is really, truly important. Um, and in this context affects kids who are neurodiverse because often they are treated as less than at school. They are isolated. And so it's more, it's easier for them to be targeted and for other people to disregard it as okay. In fact, often they're treated as though they, they somewhat asked for it. You know, they kind of deserve it. They didn't conform and they didn't, you know, toe the line. And so, and so people have less empathy for them. You know, it's interesting in in my eldest child's second grade class where something similar but not the same happened, the two kids who were most impacted were the bully and the bully, the bully and the bullier, and both kids were neurodiverse. Mm. And so, you know, we dealt with it in a way, I think that from your reading of the book, you wanted to, which was bringing the parents together to talk to each other and And we were very lucky that we were able to address it. But what really jumped out at me then was that it wasn't just the kid who was being bullied who was neurodiverse. Both kids were different. And so both kids were struggling. Right. And both kids needed support, right? Exactly. I think the one of the key takeaways I had is that there's actually a huge layer with um, restorative justice. Mm -hmm. We can label a child as a bully and another child as a victim, but that actually, that doesn't honor each child. I mean, these are children, right? So right. everybody deserves to be more, by more than what was done to them. So 
calling a child a victim really strips them of their autonomy, the rest of their identity. So it's really important to talk more about the behaviors in a way that suggests they can change. So therefore, you wouldn't just label a kid a bully, which fixes them as this just awful person, right? But if you talk about the behaviors, then you can start getting behind the behaviors and what caused them. And it sounds like in your case, it was different ways of being, different neural wiring, right? And maybe each mm-hmm. of these kids could benefit from different tools and perspectives to help grow into their best selves. Yeah. But you also talk about, um, it's, it's really important that you, it's not just the child who is targeted, who is affected, mm-hmm. though that is significant, um, it's probably worth noticing the, the talk about the consequences. I mean, I think, as you know, kids who are bullied are isolated socially. Therefore, they have lower self-esteem, academic impairment, substance abuse, delinquency. They get stress-related ailments like headaches, stomachs, problems sleeping, mental health issues like anxiety, depression, and in really sad, terrible cases, bully side. But also the chronic stress of being having to manage bullying causes inflammation, which can lead to things like diabetes and heart disease. So these are long-term consequences. And what is fascinating to me, not necessarily in a good way, but worth noting is that bystanders often have many of the same effects. They too don't feel safe environments where um, adults don't enforce community codes. And they also can uh, feel a sense of moral failure when they don't step in and help. Now, personally, I can't blame them if it's an environment where people aren't, where the adults in charge aren't helping the kids evolve into their best self, then, you know, if a child is probably scared, if they step in, they'll be targeted themselves. So I don't blame them for that. There, There are things we can do to help them. But to your point, the youth who target others, um, have many, in fact, many of the same outcomes that we just discussed, but also later in life, they have a higher propensity to have difficulty maintaining relationships, jobs, Mm -hmm. if spouse or child abuse, and even criminal behavior. So the outcomes can be even worse. So the big takeaway for me, and, uh, you know, I think for all of us is we're, we're doing nobody any favors when we gloss over bullying or say, oh, they'll figure it out or boys will be boys or, oh, she's being too sensitive. The whole community benefits, not just now, but for their entire lifetimes, when we really address bullying compassionately and excuse me and kindly. Mm-hmm. Well, and the place I want to go is like, what are the supports? So let's. I mean, uh, we could talk about this for hours and hours, but I want to mm-hmm. kind of get practical so parents to to really inform parents so that they can become advocates for their kids on, on honestly on either side. But what are the right. supports that effective schools have in place or need to put in place? Right. So it's probably worth distinguishing between bullying prevention and bullying response. So I actually looked because I was desperate for it. You know, the the one guide I could give to my school that they could implement and that everybody would be okay. That guide did not exist. In fact, one of the one of the pre, uh, pre, uh, preeminent researchers in the sub in the topic basically did a review of all bullying research to date and all the studies to date. And, you know, to me, the highlight was basically we need to do more work. (laughs) Some things work, but some things don't, and we don't have a program. 
But as I started reviewing all the research, there were some common themes and some common elements of cultures where bullying is much less likely to happen. And that is in particular in cultures that are authentic and they authentically care for people. They have mutual respect respect and include everybody and differences are valued in these cultures. You know, the caring culture is role modeled on top you know, consider an authoritarian culture versus one of mutual respect. So teachers are respected because you can imagine if if a head of school or a principal is disrespectful to a teacher, then they're going into their classroom and not being their best selves. Mm -hmm. So it really is role modeled on top. And in these cultures, students are empowered. They're empowered to define their own culture and norms. They're trained in empathy and social skills. They are Every child is considered worthy and capable of learning and achieving. And they also highlight, uh, you know, and reward acts of kindness to to demonstrate that that's the norm. Because sometimes when there's bullying, that can grab a lot of attention. And so kids can assume that that is the norm of the culture. But if you instead highlight kind acts, kids can see that there's actually um, more good than bad. And and that can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Another really important for, sorry. I'm just going to interrupt for a second yeah. so because we need to go for a quick break and then we'll come back yes. and then you wanted to finish that thought as we move okay. forward. So give us just a minute. And we'll be right back. Okay, great. Hi, it's Elaine. And if you like this podcast, you'll love our coach approach. Whether you're a parent looking for support or a professional supporting families, we invite you to download a free guide with 12 key coaching tools at impactparents.com slash gift. You can begin using a coach approach to help kids become more independent or improve all of your conversations at work and at home. That's impactparents.com slash gift. So welcome back. You were about to say, and another. (laughs) Right. So another really important part of bullying prevention is that the efforts are pervasive and long-term and integrated. So they don't just tell the students what to do, but they train all the teachers, the administrators, the playground monitors, the bus drivers, and, and the parents on how to respond um, compassionately and to respect all children. You know, a lot of schools, they have the, the one-off assembly and they put a poster yeah. on the wall. And as you can imagine, that that doesn't really work. Well, so is it a is it more, an, I mean, I'm guessing it's the answer is both, but education versus management. I mean, and, and are we doing better on education and just not on the follow through? Is there opportunities on both sides? I think there's opportunity everywhere. You know, in our case, there was no bullying program. No one had been trained in bullying. Nobody knew how to identify it. I was told it wasn't existing. I was told there's really no such thing as bullying in elementary school, that there was none. It's atypical. <laughs> And so how can you address something if you don't even acknowledge it, right? Well, I think there's a fear, and we see this in a lot of different cases, there's a fear that if you acknowledge it, then A, that will tarnish your reputation, and B, you might be liable. So there's a huge effort by administrators just to look the other way or to not acknowledge it. But really brave, compassionate cultures, you know, acknowledge, you know, one researcher said he would be much more worried about a school that acknowledged no bullying than one that documented many cases of bullying Mm -hmm. because bullying happens. Kids are testing boundaries, you know, kids, um, some of them are dealing with trauma at home or trauma, different places. I mean, there's a lot going on with these kids. Uh, And if we don't acknowledge that, uh, that's when the real problems come into play. Yeah. That makes perfect sense to me that I'm much more worried about the denial than I am about the acknowledgement. Right. Um, and yet, you know, there's this, we've had a lot of people in our community, Diane, I'm sure you've worked with people. I know I have who have 
had to move to different school districts because of bullying, mm-hmm. who've had to move mm-hmm. out of state because of bullying, who've had mm-hmm. you know a lot of really difficult situations because they're neurodiverse kids um, for a range of reasons were getting bullied and not getting the support. Right. So, and, that, sort of, and that's the huge injustice. I remember my child saying to me when we finally left our school, you know, why should I be the one I have, to, have to, to leave? What did I yeah. do wrong? Yeah. And processing that was heartbreaking. And, mm-hmm. you know, you teach your, you know, what do you say? Life isn't fair. But, you know, to this point, my kid was used to hearing that about, you know, differently sized cookies and distributing those, you know, this, <laughs> this was uprooting our whole family, everything my child knew. And, you know, really felt shameful, but the alternative was staying in a school where she wasn't safe. And, um, one of the things that you talk about in your book is this notion of institutional betrayal. So before we wrap this conversation and believe it or not, we're going to have to wrap this conversation soon. Can you explain what that means? We've talked about neurodiversity and bullying and victimization and and integration and compassion and respect, but can you explain what institutional betrayal means? What is that? Right. So institutional betrayal is a concept that was coined by a woman named Jennifer Fried, PhD. She's an amazing person. And her work actually initially dealt with sexual assault, but she has found that it's relevant and many researchers have joined her work to find it's relevant in many contexts. And basically, Basically, it's the idea that institutions can do a huge amount of damage when they don't support the people who are dependent upon them. So we actually see this in many cases. In our case, you know, I thought addressing bullying would be easy. Uh, I thought, you know, we could go to the teacher who was our teacher was kind, but we went to the administrator and I thought they would, you know, help the child who was targeted, help the the aggressor learn to be kinder and the whole world would be better. But, but as I mentioned, that didn't happen. And this happens in many cases. Like it, it, like I started watching the news and saw that, you know, boy scouts and altar boys, and for example, the Sandusky sports fans, you know, when they came forward, nobody took them seriously. We've seen issues at boarding schools and university, for example, Chanel Miller or uh, Lacey Crawford wrote wrote a, a beautiful book about her experience in boarding school athletes, we've seen gymnasts and soccer players, when they try and come forward to talk about, you know, their abuse, they were mistreated. We've seen it in the military. We've seen it in schools. We've seen it with Harvey Weinstein. And basically the concept is it can be devastating, obviously, to be victimized. That can be hugely traumatic. But when you try and get help and realize the whole organization, your whole community is effectively complicit in it, mm-hmm. the psychological impact of that is even greater. For example, they have shown that soldiers, it it affects both women and men, but the soldiers who were assault, sexually assaulted in the military versus who were assaulted in a civilian context, the long-term health consequences are much greater for those that were dependent upon the military to support them and then didn't. Um, it's so, it's like know, a double it's like double a double women. mistrust or a double yeah. betrayal. It's a double mistrust, but it, it's more than double because if you think about it, like in our case, two children gamed up and repeatedly just went after mm-hmm. my kid, right? And that is awful. I, and there were a bunch of bystanders who didn't step in because they were scared of being targeted themselves. Mm-hmm. But that was essentially two kids hurting my children and other kids not doing much, and that's not good. But when the when child looked around in the entire school, all the way up to the principal, the entire community uh, didn't support them. I mean, that can make people doubt basic 
humanity, basic goodness mm-hmm. in the world, you know, their own right to civil treatment. It makes people doubt everything. So the complicate, the long-term health consequences can be much more significant, even than the initial awful assault. Well, yeah. and so, so I kind of want to bring us wrapped by talking, Kayla. I mean, it's, it's, not most kids, I hope, are not in a situation where they're facing institutional betrayal. And if a parent and a kid ends up feeling like they're in a situation where they're trying to get support and they're seeking support from all the the right channels or the traditional channels, what are some of the out of the box things that that a parent should explore? Right. Well, in an ideal community, the parents can talk to officials at the school and those officials take each and every report seriously. They'll document it. They'll use compassion. In particular, you know, I think the ideals of restorative justice, where you help the child who was injured reclaim their rightful place in the community. So you actually center that child. And instead of like stripping them their autonomy, you actually ask them what they need and you help give them what they need that often entails like authentic apologies and not just words, but attempts at at repair. And the the Mm -hmm. child and the family can often be very instrumental in defining what that is. And then also helping the child who hurt others understand the consequences of their actions, helping them take responsibility for them and moving forward pro-socially in their own community. And this is when it happens, a beautiful thing, because then that child has learned how to be kinder. So they too have learned a lifelong skill that will benefit them as they go out in the world. Yeah. What about, what about when it's not in the ideal community? What's your, your guidance for parents who may be struggling with a school community that doesn't feel supportive? The best thing I can say is one of the hardest things is, you know, in my personal experience, and I'm just speaking from my heart because I hope nobody gets here, but finding anybody who believes you, finding any sort of community who can validate your experience, who can bear witness to what's happening to you. Because one of the most mind-bending things is to have these things happen and have people look away or people flee. You know, a lot of times mm-hmm. it's hard to, to see a kid be bullied. And, you know, there's a lot of psychology behind this, but a lot of people will look the other way because it gets them anxious to think about another child being bullied. And so people will often choose to say, oh, everything's fine. Everything's fine because the witnesses, not because they're awful people, but they too don't want to feel anxious. So if you can find anybody who believes you and supports you, that is huge. You know, I do know parents have hired lawyers. You know, if you have to go that way, you know, ideally it might be necessary. You know, some people can't leave the district. There's only one district in the school. And some people might feel the necessity of doing that. So the school learns and other kids aren't injured. Uh, But, you know, that is a tough go. It's a brave way to go. I honor anybody, but that is not easy hiring lawyers and going to head to head with the school and then sending your kid to that school where the Mm -hmm. school is upset with you because you're suing them, right? It's, it's not easy. No, it's really it's not. not easy. And we see it a lot in our community. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is I'm not, sure you do. Uh, maybe a lot so is an overstatement, but it is not uncommon for parents of neurodiverse kids to be in a position where they end up at odds with a school system, sometimes working together with their colleagues of the school system and still at the same time as adversaries with the, with the actual quote system. Right. 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 So 
We need to start wrapping up this conversation, and you're bringing so many really impactful and important issues to the discussion. You know, when we asked you, how can people find out more and get in touch with you? You know, as we said at the beginning, we're going to put Kayla's book in the notes, It's and you can also reach her at kaylataylorwrites.com, and we'll have Canaries Among Us in the show notes, so you can link directly to, to the book. And it's probably and I- worth noticing. Sorry, noting that I'm um, donating all my personal proceeds to nonprofits that support neurodiversity, bullying prevention, and um, mental health. Beautiful, beautiful. And the other thing we'll notice, we mentioned at the beginning that Kayla is off screen, and that's because Kayla Taylor is a pseudonym and to protect the privacy of her family and community she is writing under an assumed name. And so that kind of highlights the the challenging complexity of this situation and, and the odds that you have to, the lengths that you have to go to in order to be able to have this really difficult conversation without putting your kids at greater risk. Right. And again, I really but, you want know, to it's acknowledge not just your risk. effort here. Thank you. It's not just risk, but I think as you talk about so eloquently on your show so frequently, it's also about respecting my children's identity and their Mm -hmm. right to self-actualization, to defining who they are, to living their own life and coming forward with their own story. So I felt the need to support other parents going through similar things and I also wanted to allow all children involved tell their own story. And this is the only way I could find to do that eloquently or sufficiently. Makes sense. So um, Kayla, as we wrap, is there anything either that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure we cover or something you want to bring back from earlier in the conversation to put a pin in our conversation today? Sure. I think one of the most important things I learned is the research talks a lot about the impact of the bystanders, the children who are standing by that has been shown to have, if a child steps in and supports a child who's been injured, that has a huge impact. That can be hard in the moment, but you, a child can actually also go back later and say, you know, I saw what happened. I didn't think you deserve that. And the emotional impact of that, of telling someone that they're worthy of their dignity, that has a huge effect on like limiting the traumatic effect of the bullying. So I'd recommend that for kids. But one other thing I realized is maybe even more important than the bystander is the bystander's parents. Mm. So think about how often, I mean, what I would have done in the moment to have parents call me and be supportive and um, bear witness and even maybe help me advocate. Unfortunately, that was not the case. And that is not the case usually with people who are um, victimized and, and set aside and considered less worthy, right? As the neurodiverse often are. But if parents can do simple things like not use words like weird and strange when describing their friends and their kids' friends, they Mm -hmm. role model for their kids this respect that is so necessary and um, help their kids learn to value all types of people. And also, you know, they can even more actively reach out to parents. You know, if they've heard of a parent who has claimed that their child is being bullied, a lot of times people say, oh, that mom's being an oversensitive helicopter. But if, you know, parents instead stop and said, wait, that must hurt. Let me see if I can learn more. Um, maybe I should call that parents and say, this This sounds really hard. Can you tell me more? Is there anything I can do? The impact of that, I think, could 
change the whole dynamic and really validate so many people and be key in terms of building these societies that we care about where we truly honor all people. I just don't think yeah. parents realize their impact, their impact as they parents whose kids are being hurt. know we, they need help, but the parents whose kids aren't hurt don't realize how important they are. Absolutely. And just to, as we link to the show notes, we'll link to, to Kayla's book and to her website. We'll also add there are a couple of pieces on the website, including one specifically about how to talk to parents, your friends, your kids, friends, parents. There are a couple of articles from the years of working with, with other kids who've dealt with bully experiences that we will highlight for everybody, for the listeners as well in the show notes. Kayla, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being so passionate and engaged in this really important topic and, you know, moving the needle for forward, making a difference in the world. We always like to end with a fun wrap. Diane, you want to bring us there? Yeah. What, do you have a favorite quote or a motto that you like to share with our audience, Kayla? I do. But first, Elaine and Dana, I just want to thank you so much for the work you do. It is so important. I think it's really changing the world and validating people who are important, who are part of our humanity. So thank you for all you are doing. Um, As for a quote, I actually, I'll draw upon Mahatma Gandhi, who said, the true measure of any society can be found in how it treats its most vulnerable members. In our Mm -hmm. case, you know, none of these kids should be vulnerable. Everyone is worthy of their dignity and that which makes them different actually makes them more interesting in my opinion. But unfortunately, we do live in a society right now that does not value difference much of the time. Um, So I, I think that those, when people reach out and value these members of our community who should not be vulnerable, but who are made to feel vulnerable, it, it, it can be quite beautiful and very important work. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here with us, Kayla. Thank you for those of us who are listening. Let's take a minute as we wrap and do some reflecting. What, what caught your attention in our conversation? What, what do you want to capture for yourself as you move into the rest of your day from listening to this podcast? Is there any insight that you've gleaned from this conversation that you want to bring forward into your coming week? How do you want to use this? And to all of you who are here, who are listening, we want to acknowledge what you're doing for yourself and for your kids, being engaged, being in conversation, listening, learning, thinking, processing. It makes a huge difference. And as Kayla's saying, you know, the role of the parent is often under-recognized and undervalued, and you make a huge difference in the lives of your kids. Little things can have a profound impact. Thanks for being here, everybody. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to the Parenting with Impact podcast with Elaine and Diane. For more information on the Impact Parents community or to join Sanity School for Parents, please visit impactparents.com. If you like what you've heard, please share this podcast with friends who need similar guidance and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the essentials of Elaine and Diane's coach approach to parenting, download a free tip sheet at impactparents.com slash podcast. Behavior therapy training for parents is actually recommended as a first-line treatment for complex kids. For information about Sanity School, our training program for parents or teachers, which has helped thousands of families around the globe, visit impactparents.com slash sanity school.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.